0: Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is CMO70 CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Neil Patel. Dr. Patel is the Chief Information Officer of Health IT at Vanderbilt. He's an experienced leader, skilled in the use of health IT tools to improve clinical and operational processes with over 25 years of experience in implementing and advancing the use of computer order entry systems and electronic health records. Dr. Patel is also a trained pediatric critical care physician with two decades of clinical experience that he leverages to ensure health IT tools, enhance patient care and promote optimal workflow for the healthcare team. Dr. Patel, Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Well, it is absolutely amazing to have you on today. You have just a wealth of experience in health IT, having joined Vanderbilt way back in the nineties, as they were paving the way with the electronic health records and early digital adoption. To start the conversation though, I I really wanted to understand your roots and why medicine and pediatric critical care?
1: Well, it was kind of funny. I mean, if you go with the background, I think. Ultimately, going through college was trying to decide whether to be a teacher and a high school football coach, but then I realized that might be difficult to attain and have longevity in. So we ended up going into medicine, and eventually, um, after going into medicine, decided early on that I really enjoyed pediatrics. wasn't sure that I ranked well enough to match at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, and fortunately, I tried to hedge my bets by alternately uh, looking at internal medicine, but I was fortunate to get in there and then really just enjoyed myself. And it was actually at that time that I got exposed to this concept of computers and healthcare. In the early 90s, there was an old system called TDS that was being implemented and actually the year before I became a resident. And it turned out to be an abysmal failure. And there's a famous paper that was written by Tom Massaro from UVA on the experience of this on the West Coast. We just, re- the residents just rebelled and threatened to go on strike if they had to wow. use the system. And so when I was a first year resident, second year resident, we did our normal work back in the day of handwriting notes and handwriting orders on triplicate paper and would then drop off the chart onto the receptionist basket and they would pile up and they would beautifully take the charts and fax some papers down to the different departments and also enter whatever needed to be entered into the computer instead of me having to do it. And that went on. So I moved forward to third year of my residency. We have a new head of IT and they, for the first time, named me medical director of informatics. And he happened to be by attending on the rotation, at which time myself and Sajad Yakub who is currently still the CMIO at Children's of Los Angeles, were on service together, and we just started discussing computers. And we look at the receptionist as they're dutifully doing the transcription from the paper chart, and he just said, what would it take for you guys to enter these orders yourself? And never being short of opinion, we look over the shoulder and said, well, we could do it, but it doesn't really flow very well. And a little bit later, we get invited to go to a user conference by the IT team. And we were amazed at how many hospitals were represented. And this is before there was Google, and this was before you kind of knew what other people were doing. And I really recall that I thought, wow, we're really behind. All these hospitals are using physician order entry. So we quickly go back and we tried to turn on CPOE. We didn't know change management very well at the time, nor approval processes, so we forgot to tell a lot of people because we turned on radiology ordering (laughs) and all of a sudden paper started printing out in radiology and everybody got really irritated, so everybody said, sorry, and then we actually did the training and then we turned it on. So from that point forward, I became probably the precursor to the eventual role of CMIO. I actually had a formal title while I was in fellowship in pediatric critical care that um, was clinical systems liaison. Really mm-hmm. translating between the two worlds and I was got a chance to present at HIMSS in nineteen ninety six of how to mm-hmm. get physicians to use the computer. Then I finished fellowship and decided to move across the country to do pediatric critical care and I thought my IT world was behind me. <laughs> Little did you know. <laughs> Little did I know that there happened to be a guy named Bill Stead here who right. was his own CPOE system. And so Sometimes when I tell my story, people as somebody remarked that I'm the Forrest Gump of healthcare informatics because I happened to be at the right place at the right time in key situations. And I was fortunate to land at Vanderbilt where they had a prolific informatics department and they had developed their own system. And early on, I was really a naysayer because the way it needed to work in the ICU where I worked, wasn't quite there yet. But the best part was that Dr. Stead was not very hierarchical, and he asked always the key question, and it's the best thing, why? Why is it not right? And when I explained, we actually then put together a project to develop pediatric dosing for medications and an infusion calculator, which is needed to calculate infusions in the ICU. And that was the tipping point for us to be able to then adopt CPOE. And I kind of learned then that Translating the clinical world to the IT world in two different instances resulted of turning failure into success and hence was the start of doing what I've been doing for a long time.
2: Yeah, I know you mentioned part of this was maybe being at the right place at the right time, but I've got to imagine, you know, you are the only physician there who was being asked about, you know, what, what would it take for you to do your own orders? So. Something different about you, I assume. And then, and then also when it comes to CMIOs and CIOs, I mean, most of that Alan and I talk to are typically in internal medicine or, or, or primary care, family medicine, very rare to have, I think, a, a critical care physician, let alone a pediatric critical care physician leading digital <laughs> IT. So I feel like there must be something different about you. Any sense as to what that is? Like, why don't we see more critical care <laughs> doctors leading this? I think you see a wide variety of
1: doctors in these roles nowadays. A couple key things. Back then, the IT systems were really Mm inpatient-focused early on because you had lab systems and uh, radiology systems whose data we were highly reliant upon. So a clinician who understood inpatient workflow at that time, right, Uh, different than recent times. And as an ICU physician, what you learned quickly was that you were the glue that held all the other specialties together for a critical care patient. I always kind of say that we're an ist, not an ologist, right? I'm an intensivist. I don't own an organ and we have to get all the ologists to compromise and balance their different opinions and treatment approaches to kind of cohesively create a treatment plan for the patient. And I feel in the same way, a lot of these solutions need the same type of understanding of the pushes and pulls and how doing one thing for one stakeholder may have a downstream effect on somebody else. And you kind of have to understand that. And so I think in some ways managing the logistics and the collaboration that you have to have in an intensive care environment seem to play well in terms of adapting those skills into the IT
0: space. Yeah, that makes sense. I love the analogy of, you know, IT being the glue that's holding all the all the organization together. And so Neil, I actually wanted you brought up Dr. Billstead. His pioneering work truly in, at Vanderbilt, building one of the very first EHRs before Epic, before Cerner, before all those guys were even in in existence. So I'm curious because I know recently you've now transitioned over to Epic, and so I'm curious how was that transition going from this homegrown application, this EHR, with hundreds of other applications that were dependent on that over yeah. multiple decades. How was that transition going to this single platform in recent years? Well, it was a
1: significant transition and uh, one that uh, nobody ever thought Vanderbilt would undertake, but I do think that one of the key pieces to remember is that we had all these vended systems here, right? We had McKesson, we had GE, we had Cerner and a myriad of other systems. And we still have a lot of them in addition to Epic because Everybody kind of views the electronic health record as just Epic. But we full well know that when you get into the space, you have all of the tightly coupled bolt-ons that make things work, like faxing solution, document management solution, voice recognition, transcription solutions. But in addition to that, there's a lot of other applications that are domain specific. For example, in endoscopy, you have solutions like probation to capture the images, and other parts of the organization, you have lots of systems. So one of the tenets of the Vanderbilt architecture was integration. And the thought process and the brilliance of Dr. Stead and his view of architecture was by having the right integration points and having the data decoupled from the source system, you could change out the source system without affecting everything else because you need to do it for the right reasons. And really it became time, especially with Meaningful Use and the High Tech Act and needing to certify EHRs, that there was no way that we could carry on doing our homegrown build only to have to certify it just for one hospital. And given the fact that we were already planning on changing to EPIC for our revenue cycle system, it just became appropriate to say we need to go commercial. Because although we had a homegrown EHR for lots of functions, we also had... proprietary vendor portion for managing our pharmacy and managing our nursing documentation and when that was going to be sunset we didn't want to build all that by ourselves and you couldn't buy components anymore so we had to think of it as a whole suite and that really forced the equation and actually it was the exact right time for us to do so the immediate need of having a more integrated front-end and back-end system that allowed data flow and to have a modern platform. A lot of the tenants that we had developed over time had become robust enough in these systems so that the transition, no doubt difficult, right, Uh, as any transition is. But the good part for us is that we were going from a electronic health record to an electronic health record, which is markedly different than those systems that transition from paper uh, to electronic health record. I think our biggest difficulty was that our users had grown accustomed to yeah. a incredible amount of functionality that was highly customized to specific workflows. And so at times, it felt that we weren't making an advance. But I think on the whole, we did because we shored up a lot of gaps in the system that uh, we couldn't have paid attention to um, in a homegrown system.
2: Earlier on, when you were talking about your initial exposure to informatics with the, the CPOE initiative at when you were in training, You mentioned that one of your biggest lessons was around change management. And you went live and then you had to go back and do the training again. I'm kind of curious, now that you've been doing this for so many years, what would you say is the biggest lesson around change management that you tend to impart on others today?
1: Well, there's one caveat that people should always watch out for, and especially those who become CMIOs. You're at the table, and more often than not, it's not just about the physician. And you have to really watch When somebody's advocating for a field or a data entry point someplace, you have to look at who actually is the person that's entering that data and does the person who's asking for it speak for the people who are going to have to enter it. And if you think about it, that's what actually was wrong with the very early CPOE systems. They were designed by folks who would show up to the meetings and those weren't physicians. And so then all of a sudden. When on paper you only had to write a few things, all of a sudden you had to enter a lot of things on the computer, you felt like you were being really forced into that clerk mentality. And so nowadays I look out in reverse. Are we putting too much on the nurse to enter? Are we putting too much on the pharmacist to enter? Or who on the care team is gonna be burdened with this really nice to have documentation? (laughs) And so I think looking at each member of the care team and their workflow is probably the most important thing I can impart to folks and not just focus from one angle.
2: I love, it. it's almost like you're, you're seeing what are the potential like second and third order effects of a change in in the the IT system. It's like, okay, who is it gonna impact actually at the end user, not just your partner, who was in the room advocating for a decision because they're often not the same person. That's a fantastic, fantastic insight. I love that. But one of the things that I know you're not shy about because I saw you um, at <laughs> Becker's, you know, you're not shy to make, you know, really I won't say provocative, but very like, forward-thinking statement. So, you know, one of the things that, that you said was, um, and, and I'll, I'll just say like a lot of folks talking about generative, but I thought you spoke with something different, but important. Uh, and, and please correct me if I, by misphrasing you, but you said something to the effect of, you know, virtual nursing is going to be like the Wi-Fi healthcare. Did we need to do an ROI analysis of Wi-Fi when we put Wi-Fi in hospitals? We didn't. And similarly, virtual nursing is going to be like the Wi-Fi infrastructure embedded throughout healthcare. First, did I did I capture that right? And secondly, assuming I did, like, could you unpack it a bit more? What did you mean by Her. that?
1: So, if you think about the technology portion of it, right, In, uh, putting cameras uh, with microphones and a screen display to have two way video capabilities, I do believe is going to become table stakes for every smart room uh, as we move forward. People talk about smart hospitals. Well, by definition, we could say my hospital smart because it has an Ethernet jack. And you could plug a computer in, because I helped design the Children's Hospital here at Vanderbilt back in the early 2000s, and we opened almost 20 years ago, coming this February. And at that time, we were designing for the future. And now looking two decades back, we did a pretty good job of it. Now if we're thinking about what healthcare is going to look like in 2043, how are we going to design for the future and not have to go retrofit? Because it's really hard to go retrofit into infrastructure. So even though you may not have the program and even though you may not leverage the capabilities, let's think about that every new room we build or every new floor we build or every new hospital we build, there's just some things that are gonna now have to be standard. No different than we pull Ethernet cable to each room and not just one, now we have to do many because of all the different things that might be there. And now we make sure there's Wi-Fi there. I think in this future with the capabilities that Basically, we've learned from COVID. Look at what you and I are doing now. We wouldn't have done this pre-COVID, right? In this manner, Uh, very few folks were doing it. We would have had an audio conference call, and it wouldn't—it would have been still a podcast, but it would have been audio. And we learned something, which is the silver lining of a horrible situation: that the time of virtual care is now, and it will be in the future, and how it is integrated into the appropriate places. Right? It's not about replacement but being put into the appropriate places. We in technology have to anticipate the workflows that might come and hopefully pre-build or at least have plug-in ready infrastructure so that we're ready to go.
2: Can I ask you, so with with things like virtual nursing, I guess one of the benefits is for, let's say, nurses who otherwise would maybe retire or, or move on, this is a way for them to still be engaged and involved and for you to leverage that expertise. Do you ever fear that it becomes such a compelling experience to be able to do virtual nursing that folks may not want to be so much of the front line if they know they can do this virtually? Like, is that ever a concern from a workforce point of view?
1: At least not yet. Being in healthcare, one of the best things is laying hands on a patient and providing treatment and having that compassion in the room. So I think it's an end conversation. And I think you can work virtually at times and provide your expertise, but nothing is more impactful than being side by side with a patient in any environment, ambulatory and diagnostics or in the hospital. So I think it's a a balance. I do think that with all the burden that is on our frontline clinicians and with the staffing shortages, leveraging knowledge in a way that assists the care process, and can reduce some of the burden so that the bedside provider workflow is optimized, I think is what we're talking about. And hopefully that actually keeps people more at the bedside rather than burning out or feeling like this is too much work for the reward. You
2: know, and to your point in the same way that being with a patient in person is so powerful. And, and like you said, it's gonna be an end thing. I can imagine like if we were to do this podcast in person, it would be even that much more powerful of an experience for well, all of us. So I, I think that that in-person human element is so true no matter what the the situation is.
1: Right. Otherwise, I mean, think about it. Everybody has Taylor Swift's album, but people still 100%. want to go see it in person, don't they? 100%. <laughs> the the album, I actually heard just... you to
0: pay Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. that. First time on the podcast. I love that. <laughs> we're going we're to get her on this soon. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great call-up. So Neil, you've actually, you mentioned in the past that the journey is a marathon when it comes to digital transformation. So you you started at Vanderbilt before the children's hospital was even built, because I, I think back in the day, it was like a floor on the main building. So that's, that's yeah, really fascinating. A,
1: we were a hospital. We were one of the first hospital within a hospital.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's so cool. But I was curious, your thoughts in terms of this marathon that really is digital transformation and setting up for the future of healthcare for tomorrow today. How do you keep the team motivated and focused on the things that really matter?
1: I mean, we have an incredible group here at Vanderbilt, and it's not too hard to keep people motivated. There's a reason that they work at Vanderbilt. And these days, when you can work remotely, you have a lot of choice. But what we try to do is continually provide feedback on the impact that they're having and the manner in which the solutions that we're working on have been manifested in real life. That's really, really important because it's so easy to just kind of have your heads down and bang out work. But if you don't know the why behind it, it becomes problematic. Nashville is a small community and somebody knows somebody that's been in the hospital at Vanderbilt. And a lot of us, our family, as well as ourselves receive care here. So in many ways, we're all secret shoppers. And it is important that for especially our loved ones that the care here is top-notch, and when we're working on the technology, it should provide as seamless and pleasant an experience as possible. And so we try uh, with great purpose. We do clinical rounding. I and other clinical informaticists take frontline tech, the technical folks, and immerse them in the clinic, in the perioperative area, in the ED, in the hospital space, and point out how the technology is working, and to show them the impact of what we do, as well as, gosh, imagine if this and this didn't work this way, how would they deliver care? And also look for opportunities, because as good as we think we are, as soon as you step foot into any care environment, you can find deficiencies, right? And I think pointing those out and where we play a very, very important role in that, it really helps folks to see that they're having direct impact On the patients that are in our care.
2: I love that it kind of reminds me of one of the things that Ed Marks tends to say a lot is if you're on the IT team you are part of the healthcare team and I think you bringing them to the front line so they can like you said be immersed in the clinical environment point out this is the stuff that we're enabling that sounds so important from a self-motivation point of view, that, okay, this is this is actually why this matters. I, I love that. And I think to your point, a lot of folks forget that sometimes. They're so into like the weeds of it. They don't see that impact, but, but it's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah, and it, it works in the reverse too. When you're trying to translate between the two worlds, you bring them into the environment in which you experience it. And I can remember this 20 plus years ago when we were trying to put in CPOE into my ICU. I made them come in and I said, look, right over there, there's the post-operative patient, three-day-old, with an open chest on a ventilator and multiple IV infusions. And I said, when do you think that nurse is going to be able to leave that bedside and go find that piece of paper that printed out on the computer to know that there's a new order? And all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off because they would say, oh, well, the order prints out over there. I said, that's great. We need some sort of signal to the bedside that there's a new order. Just little things like that help people understand the context that we have to work in. And when those light bulbs go off and that sort of understanding happens, then the brilliance of these individuals, technologists, informaticists, and and clinicians, when they work together, uh, that's when the magic happens.
2: Amazing. You know, one of the things that you had in motion just before COVID was you implemented a, a self-check-in and a centralized welcome desk model at, at Bandy. Love to unpack a bit more about like, how did that initiative start? What's the origin behind that?
1: Well, we started a portion of it that was just the initial check-in process to do some of the paperwork on your patient portal, which was everybody's dream, but it really started really from a mandate from our CEO who is a physician and he said, does it make sense that if we're this advanced and healthcare IT why we still have clipboards with paper in the clinics and that started the process for a paperless clinic. Fast forward actually just last week since COVID we have gone to complete patient self-service capability to the point where the patient does not have to go to the front desk unless necessary and our last adult clinic was just implemented last week where you can go and do everything on your phone and basically arrive yourself and sit in the waiting room where we you are supposed to, and you'll just be called straight in the room instead of having to go to the front desk. And so we're trying to push the technology as it is to its forefront, because just like in our personal lives now, we like self-service, right? How many folks of your peers actually go to the cash register at Starbucks to order your drink anymore when you have the ability to use the mobile app and it be ready for you. I think in the same way, I think our patients expect that out of healthcare for the things that it should be for, so that when they're actually engaging with the individuals for the right things, from the healthcare side, it frees up those individuals to actually have the time to spend with those patients and those families that actually need their help because of the complexity, not just the routine, mundane administrative tasks. So I think we are constantly looking for opportunities and we are fortunate here at Vanderbilt to have an incredible team, physician leaders and clinicians who are on our team in health IT to lead various projects like this across the medical center.
2: It's funny. So before you mentioned Starbucks, I started thinking about that and the, and the, you know, mobile advanced ordering. And I remember years ago before it was mainstream, I was an early adopter of it. And as you know at hospitals they had the longest starbucks lines right you could see it's so many providers and staff who need to get their coffee and so before most people were using it like i was skipping the line constantly at the hospital to get starbucks now i think everyone's probably doing it But so just oh. reviving that story yeah that's that's wonderful
1: no absolutely and it paid dividends today i was meeting with dr Hare, who's actually leading our what we call the virtual front desk initiative at our local panera on campus and he had ordered ahead, and there it was—the bag with our lunch in it. And that way, we didn't have to mess with the 15 minutes that you'd have to wait in line while we have to talk for our 30-minute meeting.
2: Well, well, tell us once you start setting up drones to drop uh, coffee <laughs> off at, at your desk, yeah. so that you don't have to go to Panera.
1: <laughs> I'll let you guys do that one. I think I'm at the tail end of my career. I don't, I don't know about aerodynamics.
0: <laughs> so Neil, I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know. Today's market conditions and financial constraints, but even prior to today's period, Vanderbilt has always been very responsible with how they're spending money. Being an academic medical center, risk is always in the equation. You've actually said in the past that it's too risky to take on eight products and have six of them fail only to have you know those two successes. So I'm curious, how do you think about your digital roadmap knowing that you can't just budget for six out of eight projects to fail? What's important to consider?
1: So I think the uh, considerations these days are much more important than dabbling and piloting things in the past when you had a lot more leeway and minimal constraints. First and foremost, hands down, is the security posture. We've seen the ransomware attacks. Um, Vanderbilt is extremely cautious in this space. Our patients' data is extremely important to us. And the safety of our system, not being locked down because we are the key hospital in the Southeast that has to provide tertiary and coronary care. And so part of our first is what is the security level posture and can they withstand the rigor that we're going to put them through? So a lot of work now has to be done up front to say, okay, what level of robustness is this company? And obviously you want to work with startups at some level, but there has to be enough robustness there, or you have to figure out the right safe sandbox in which to test it. And we've done bits of both. And then you iterate forward. So it's not going all in on eight platforms you, we may still evaluate eight, but we do it very rigorously and very agilely to try to quickly find where the red flags are and that they may not meet our needs at this time, given where we are as an institution. And we don't pick 100%. We've also had uh, ones that may come in and, gosh, maybe that wasn't the best for a variety of reasons. But just doing that due diligence One of the worst things that can happen to me is when somebody comes to me and said, oh, well, this vendor is gonna help us do this. And they said, IT doesn't need to be involved and it's all in the cloud. And I'm just like, oh, that's great. Let's just have a look and make sure that we all understand what they're doing. And I think that's where clinicians who are translators between the technology world and operations and clinical world have to understand what that truly means. And no doubt, Everybody is, you know, there's not a malicious intent there. People want people to try their product, right? We all go to Costco and take samples uh, and enjoy them. Um, But there's also plenty of samples that weren't worth it.
2: Yeah. And I think, I think to your point, maybe I don't mind the free samples at Costco, but in the complex healthcare environment, uh, you know, free is never really free. There is some cost of ownership and maintenance that I think people underappreciate unless they've sat in, you know on your side of the table and, and you're the one ha- you're the one left holding the bag and having to, to deal with the aftermath of things. So um, I, I think enough time people get it, but they have to live it and sometimes make mistakes there. Yep. Um, you know, we have to talk about AI because just because it's 2023 <laughs> and if we don't, if exactly. we don't we're disappointed. Um, you know, I you fi- you I finally learned how to spell it. Oh, excellent! It, yeah, it's a top one. Yeah. Uh, you've recently kind of noted how, you know, you believe AI can someday be helpful in summarizing, aggregating, translating, and extrapolating from clean data across a lot of sources. And you've also been healthily skeptical of, you know, using AI properly, given the risk of hallucinations from things like generative. So how are you thinking about those challenges so that you can make AI safe and useful in your environment today?
1: Well, first and foremost, we have to really differentiate that AI is not one thing. Well, and I think that's, uh, I think we need to educate ourselves and our peers of what this means. Because everybody, I think, obviously the hype and the excitement is around generative AI since last year when ChatGPT came to the forefront. But if we think about just AI in general and, you know, several of us and masumit Rana uh, from Epic speaks to this well, you can start all the way from basic rules-based logic And he kind of talks about the continuum. And we actually shared a panel together recently that talks that there's a continuum from basic deterministic AI, that's rule-based logic, to predictive algorithms, to neural nets, all the way to generative AI and with specific large language models. And it's really about the right tool for the right job. An example that I gave is, you know, people say, well, technology should make you better or faster or make the process is more efficient, right? So you would think that me taking care of a baby in the PEDS ICU after heart surgery, I should probably use a calculator when I'm calculating all these medications. Would you agree that that would make me better than doing hand calculations, right? Why do I trust the calculator's answer? We trust it because it's math and you can check it and it always gives you the same answer with the same inputs and we trust our lives on it, right? go all the way to the other extreme where now it's a probabilistic model. And the answer is probably right. Now what do you want me to do? Should I use it? Because now it's the better, faster, cooler tool to dose that medication. And I think that hopefully gives a little bit of insight into let's understand these tools for certain things where the risk of failure is not impactful or has minimal impact. Yes, let's, leverage it, and maybe it has advantages. In other situations, let's do the right rigorous testing to make sure that it doesn't cause harm. And I think that's where the conversation is going. Lots of groups are having it, lots of technologies are having it, lots of vendors are having it. And I think part of our job and through podcasts like this and others is to just first and foremost educate ourselves. I mean, I've been on an education journey since last year for myself to learn and say, okay, how am I articulating this Does it make sense? Do I actually understand what I'm saying? And I think we have to help do that to our colleagues in the healthcare world so that we could make good decisions and then partner with vendors to then appropriately find the right tools for the right situation and then apply them.
2: You know, and I think to your point, um, the the safety requirements of healthcare means you have to be just that much more thoughtful about even trying some of of this stuff. So for example, when I think about, let's say, you know, our company internally, sure, we could spit up a a new custom GPT for answering questions about our internal operations and HR stuff and all that. And maybe you could do that in, in Vandy as well, but then to build a custom GPT for direct patient communications around clinical topics. Okay. Now, now the risk of, hallucination is that much more, you know, catastrophic, and and so healthcare is this unique, you know, world where you can't afford to be, you know, wrong all that often. Whereas in any other industry, it's okay, you know, there's not that many catastrophic mistakes that you could make. Here, it's so different, and so that that makes a makes a lot, a lot of sense. Just wondering from your perspective, besides, so I mean, we're hearing a lot from CIOs and CMIOs that generative for inbox messages and ambient are kind of like the to really hot things people are looking into right now for obvious reasons, are there any other use cases that you feel like might be low hanging fruit that folks are just not giving enough attention lately in in healthcare?
1: Well, I don't know about attention. I do think that we have to go in a stepwise function and work you toward this, right? Where large language models can be effective, they should be evaluated. And I always look out for some red flag that prompts me or some prompt, I should say, pun intended, <laughs> to, to get me to think, is this the point where we should be asking a question? Or should I raise my hand and say, well, wait, that doesn't make sense. Back in the old days, one of the prompts that would get me was when we would say, well, you know, and then we'll in-service everybody. We'll train everybody how to use this. And then I would raise my hand and say, well, in this case, how many people here will order Starbucks? mobile ordering with their coffee and trust the system with their credit card or in the old days I used to use the Southwest Airlines booking a, a ticket and you show up to the airport and you expect to get on the plane. So you have a trust level there that is effective but I don't remember any of us attending training or the module that took us through or you know the LMS module that took us through to be certified to use the mobile app or the Southwest Airlines website. So I kind of get back to, so that was a prompt. In this day and age, I think we have to look at the same type of prompts of, oh, well, don't worry, you know, from the vendors. Uh, The vendor says, don't worry, there'll always be a human in the middle, right? The human will review things because it's not our tool that will just do it. So last week I asked the room that there was vendors and said, okay, well, Of course, always a human will review things because all of us do in full detail review all the terms and conditions before we click at the bottom, before we load an app onto our phone. Right? Right? So I I do not. (laughs) I mean, that's what you're expecting the position to do when Mm -hmm. everything is nicely summarized two pages long and I'm supposed to put my name at the bottom of it. So I always say, look out for human behavior. And no matter the best of intentions, look at how we lead our own lives and find analogies so that it makes you kind of pause and take a step back and not get caught up in the standard talking points.
2: I was going to say, I, I love that tool of like finding everyday analogies to help explain things to people. Because I think when you gave the analogy around, okay, how many of us actually read the terms and conditions of a new app? All of us, Pretty much don't read that, but it allows us to really visualize, oh, that's a good point. Real human behavior, not not hypothetical, like actually using real human behavior as an analogy. I love that. That's really smart.
1: So, I don't know. My claim to fame really is keeping things simple because I'm really not a technologist. I'm really just a grumpy user.
2: You're, you're a pragmatist. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: I think that's great though, Neil, because, you know, you're clearly able to understand some of the nuances there. Just by taking a pause and asking those questions, it kind of forces you to really consider, okay, this isn't a black or white equation. So we need to kind of dive a little bit deeper into the weeds and understand what's going on. And that kind of leads me to this next thought, question that I had around determining ROI when it comes to digital technologies. There are certainly solutions that are very close to the PNL and you can understand the impact that it makes. But then there are definitely some other solutions out there that are way more nuanced. So, so I'm curious how you approach decision making when it comes to implementing or giving the green light to a certain project and how do you go about communicating total cost of ownership with your providers and your teams? So it's different concepts, and sometimes we,
1: I I believe in using the right terminology at times. When you're talking about return on investment, that should be calculable, right, at at some level, and some things are not calculable. And then total cost of ownership means that you actually have to look at all the aspects of cost, not just what you pay the vendor. And so we've kind of gotten a better understanding of Vanderbilt over the past five years on that concept so that people don't under-resource. And then, get frustrated because we're not able to do all the things that we're supposed to do. Now we're really getting into this space of what is the value and is it aligned with what we as an institution are trying to accomplish and will this help us get there? So with some of these digital tools and the effort that goes into putting in them, we have to know what is it that you're trying to accomplish. It simply can't be we want to implement this technology, right? That's not the strategic direction of Vanderbilt but we have decided that we want the patient experience to be seamless. So now we can weigh against that aspirational goal, that vision to say, okay, how does this technology, if implemented, what will it take to implement? You know, what change management, what effort, et cetera, et cetera, and will it help us achieve and take a few steps toward that goal? And is the cost of that and the anticipated improvement worth it, right? It's a qualitative decision sometimes. In the same way, the second tenant that we have now ascribed to for obvious reasons is we have to bring joy back to medicine. So the burden on our frontline staff, physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, medical receptionists, social workers, doesn't matter. Every one of our staff is under-resourced and oversubscribed. So same thing. Will this initiative, will this solution, whether it's configuring a workflow within our existing EHR or looking at a vendor product to integrate into our system, how will it advance us on that journey toward that goal? And so those types of things are where we talk about value and strategic alignment. And I think we weigh that, and then we make a case, and with our leadership uh, that we say, here's where it is and here's the pitfalls and here's what it will take to actually scale because to do the thing that we want to do, we can calculate exactly the resources and, and the cost, but then is it really worth it to you to do so, right? Alan, if it took you two hours to upgrade your Starbucks app every two weeks,
0: but it's great that you can get your coffee early, what do you think? I mean, I'd probably stick to making coffee at home, to be honest. It, it's, but you it see it's the Two hours. Right? All of a sudden, you realize that there's a cost
1: yeah, that's yeah. not worth it for the value that you're getting, Right. which was efficiency, right? You can't calculate that. And so those are mechanisms by which we can pit things against each other or like solutions or different workflows that are competing for the same resource. And at the end of the day, health IT at Bannabill does not make the decision. We lay out the options, the pros and cons, and the estimates, and maybe a recommendation. But at the end of the day, our clinical clinicians and operators have to uh, make the final decision.
0: Yeah, totally. So Neil, just be mindful of your time, I had one last question, and I, I wanted to kind of take you on a trip down memory lane for a minute. Uh, <laughs> back in the day, President George W. Bush actually recognized your contributions in healthcare. He visited Vanderbilt, I believe. He gave him a tour of the facilities. And I think he even gave you a shout out in one of his presidential speeches. What was it like meeting him in person? And the second part of the question is what initiatives have you been most proud of since that time? It's surreal. I, again, I was just happy
1: to be at Vanderbilt at the right time to be able to do that uh, because he came here for what the system had accomplished and had up to that time myself and Jim Jurgis, uh, who was my colleague at the time and and were fortunate enough to do two different aspects of his visit. One was a demonstration of our systems, which I was able to provide in our ICU, in our newly opened children's oh, hospital. We had it open oh. and just three months prior. And what was neat was he grasped it immediately. Oh. And he understood the impact level. We had Dr. Bill Frist, who was preeminent at the Senate majority leader at that time, and I think he was very influential in in that space, as well as Dr. Stead and Dr. Jacobson at the time. The other part was Jim Jurgis was on stage at the town hall explaining the impact in terms of the ambulatory environment with one of his patients, and one of the patient's mothers that we had taken care of in the PEDS ICU, who was one of the first patients I took care of when I came to Vanderbilt. And the story she told was, We used to have to deliver um, the chart in a wheelchair because it was that big, and now it's just instantly available wherever the appointment is. And just to have that type of impact at that point, to say that the, the data that was necessary, whether you're visiting the ED or you go into your multiple different clinic subspecialty appointments for a complex case. The data is readily available rather than having to keep the in the old days the shadow charts or pull up the big chart and which volume and et cetera, et cetera. So as much as we gripe about navigating the EHR and trying to find data, we actually were never even doing that back in the analog days. It was just too logistically difficult oh. to do. So we're still a lot better off in many ways. I think we're holding ourselves to a much higher standard than we did because we could just blame logistics back then. So that aspect was important. Being having an opportunity to demonstrate it to the president was surreal and probably, you know, my fifteen minutes of fame came a little bit too early.
0: Thoughts awesome. on Well, again, being mindful of your time, let's flip over. We have what we call the fast five lightning round. So just right. five quick questions to get to know you better. The first question we have is, what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? I think my favorite book is The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm -hmm. I use that,
1: examples from that more than probably any other book in terms of helping people to understand how to move forward Mm -hmm. and help coach people on how they need to move forward and develop an idea, progress, and get people to understand.
0: Love it. Question two, who is a person, either dead or alive, you'd love to meet? Oh, wow.
1: I would like to meet Tom Edison. Mm. I like innovation or invention because you, the the way that comes about is you're looking at things a little bit differently. Cool. I really try to do that at times. I'd love to just talk to him and see how he came up with the ideas mm-hmm. and what were the triggers.
0: Yep. Love it. Question three. Would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Uh, the last one was a bit too scary.
1: Uh, and, so, and because I am short and fat, I would like super speed. Yeah. Love it.
0: Question four. What is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane?
1: That we are so still so highly dependent upon the fax machine.
0: Yeah. Good point. Uh, last question that we have, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why?
1: Well, this really stems because I was finally here on one of my bucket list trips and uh, my wife and I were able to finally visit Athens. Oh, wow. And the Acropolis and to just hear about Athenian society and everything that was happening back then. I would love to go back and
0: experience that. That's very cool. Well, thank you, Neil, so much for sharing your time with us today. Your- pragmatic views were honestly super appreciated thank you so much for being so candid with us um that's a wrap for this episode of the digital patient hosted by seamless md you can follow us on twitter at seamless md and if you like the podcast and you want to learn more please visit trippylebby.seamless.md neil dr patel again thank you so much
1: all right thank you guys